welcome to Wine and Murder Night, a podcast where two friends discuss, and drink to, their favorite cozy mysteries. I'm Carolyn Wilkie. And I'm Sabrina Marshausen. I feel like since we've started doing Agatha Christie, she's popping up everywhere for me. I was listening to another one of my favorite podcasts. Um, it's called The Illusionist, and I totally recommend it if you're into language, which I know you are, Sabrina. Um, but she basically, As a like, French teacher. Yeah, no, no, I hate language. <laughs> I hate everything to do with language. I don't speak seven of them. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the, she mostly concentrates on the English language for the most uh, part, but yeah. mo- like, it's about like how language affects our lives and stuff like that. But like, she's also like possibly the only person that has a nicer voice than you do. Mm-hmm. And, but she's, it's a super like, and NPR meets BBC. It's great. Yeah. Um, but, I I love the BBC Radio Four voices. They're my favorite, and but they all you know they all went to Cambridge or Oxford, so it's kind of like this weird. Well, not only that, a lot of them went to Durham, which is it's all kind of Ivy League type schools. Yeah, so Durham is one of them, and so they all have these. Durham has a nice Midlands type accent, which is very homely. So it's all nice, but yeah, I love BBC Radio Four voices, even though they are quite upper class. Well, so one of the episodes I was listening to was about books that we read when we're um, recuperating, and Agatha Christie is the best-selling author of pretty much all time, in large part because a lot of her books were read by soldiers recovering from World War One. Mm-hmm. And World War One or World War Two. Both, but oh, one, yeah. one is where she got her start, really. Yes, like, that's, that's true. Yeah, that's where I didn't it, think it came that, from. She wrote in the twenties. Yeah, she so for a long ass time. Yeah, well, that's also why she's such a best-selling author. Is she wrote forever? <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so they were talking about that, and I was like, "What the hell? We're doing Agatha Christie, all right? Like on our podcast too?" Yeah, and then it she shows up on Jeopardy. Um, clues i ran that one and obviously whenever i read christy things that show up in her books themes that show up in her books will show up just in my life like one of the characters is a biracial woman although in the book they're super racist about it um but um so like i i immediately attached to her in the book i did go to her favorite restaurant when I was in London last year and it was on election day. So I wore my labor rosette and uh, it's in a really Tory part of London, which is unusual because London's pretty uh, labor. (laughs) And the table next to me, it was these three chinless wags, of course, (laughs) like I guess a couple and like her father, I think. And he raised the toast to Theresa May. Oh, and looked God. dead at me as he did it. And, you know, we all laughed and had a jolly good. But, oh, my fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> and it was so funny because the table I sat at was a desk. It wasn't it wasn't like a table table. It was like a it was like a reclaimed desk. So it had drawers. Oh, fun. That you could open. <laughs> I didn't leave anything in them or like take anything. Out. There wasn't anything in them, but it was just really funny. This episode of... Agatha Christie's Marble is very Tory, I would say. Oh, quite, quite very, quite. very Tory. It's a, it's even more so in the book, and also the book is not a, uh, is not a Marple book. Marple doesn't show up in the book. This is just one of her normal books. 
Oh wow! Priority. Yeah. So it's it's but the rest of the book is oh pretty. There's it stays about way more true to the book than Bertram's. Well, that's, that's sure. good. What are you drinking tonight? I'm drinking a South African wine called Jackals. It's a white wine blend. It's 2016. Um, it says. The wine is made for great drinkability. This is wine uh, to get you plastered. That's a lie. <laughs> you cannot fucking drink this wine. Shh. Spoilers. It's, although it's got a really adorable label. It's got a jackal, like a jackal hound on the front, uh, with a upturned iron horseshoe for good luck, because you don't want the luck to run out. And then in the corner, it's got a little, it's got a little parrot in a bell jar. So it is a, it's a quite a nice label. That's actually in, I know like two things total about wine. And one Mm -hmm. of them is this, is that would be literally called a critter label. And the reason they make those labels is because they know the wine is shit. So they have to put something (laughs) cute on the label to get people to buy it. I mean, it is a five or six dollar liter wine. (laughs) Um, Last, the last times was quite good. So I had high hopes. Uh, I am drinking a 2016 dark Cabernet Sauvignon um, from House Wine, which I think is California. I don't know. It says, um, oh, Washington. Sorry. I picked this one rather than the regular Cabernet because I was like, well, it's a wine show. Let's try something new. We will see. We will see. Do you want to get right into it? Yeah, because most of my notes... (laughs) Just about the five British actors. (laughs) (laughs) We watched Agatha Christie's Marple, season three, episode two, Ordeal by Innocence. Not a Marple book, just a TV show. Yeah, but it opened on a real jazzy intro, and we see a shot of a secretary, presumably a secretary, uh, gazing longingly of the finger at the fingers of the man who's working. She in works the, in the desk in front of her. Yeah. So, <laughs> and uh, she is a five British actor. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know somehow. I miss you. I love you. That's why I. Cheerio. Goodbye. She is. She's Juliet Stevenson. You might know her from Bend It Like Beckham. She's the I'm... George Michael mom. <laughs> she is the George Michael mom. <laughs> I know her from The Hour, which is a, a Cold War spy thriller. Ooh. I, yeah, you know how I am. If it's got spies in, I'm fucking watching it. So. <laughs> yeah. And not only is she one, but there's a billion. Yeah, and we're going to go through them all because... Right now. We're just going to do it right now. Because there's 11 of them and it would take too much time. Dennis Lawson, the man who she's lovingly gazing at, uh, is in all the Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. And he's in Death by Paradise as well. Then we have Richard Armitage, who plays Philip Durant. He's in The Hobbit as Thorin. He's in Hannibal. And he's in Spooks. Spooks is the most 2000s show I've ever watched in my entire life. I was like, ooh, spies. Fucking no. It's awful. <laughs> it's, 
It's supposed to be about the MI5, basically, but it's set in the future MI5 where everything is done with zoom in and, you know, CCTV and all that. And then we have Stephanie Leonidas, who plays Hester. She's in the TV uh, show Snatch, not the movies, but the TV show, which is which is quite funny, actually. I Um, watched the first episode of it. I couldn't get into it. Uh, You have to you have to give it time. Okay. I know. Uh, Midsummer Murders, she's in Midsummer Murders, and she's also in Poirot, so she's in another Christie show. Then we have Lisa Stansfield, who plays Mary Durant, who who sings. I don't know where my baby is, but I'll find him somewhere, somehow. Been around the world, and I, 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 I can't find my baby. Holy shit! I don't know, and I don't know why. Yeah, that's her. I would never have pegged that one. Yeah, she she sings more than she acts, and I'm really sorry <laughs> that I had to sing it. But yeah, that's her. Then we have uh, Bern Gorman, who plays Jacko. He's in Pacific Rim. He's in The Amazing, and then there were none. It's uh, a really recent uh, miniseries of the Agatha Christie, and it's beautiful. And he's um, Game of Thrones. He's in Game of Thrones as well. He also is like the most punchable face in this entire episode. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They did very well to hire him. Um, then we have Julian Ryan Tut, who plays Dr. Calgary. He's in Praho. He's in Merlin. He's in Tom Hardy's Oliver Twist. Um, and, <laughs> and he plays in Black Books. Black Books is one of my favorite comedy shows. I don't really like comedy shows, but he plays the travel blogger who goes and does a uh, who does a lecture at the bookstore. It's hysterical. Uh, then we have the indomitable Jane Seymour as Rachel I Argyle. Screamed when I Dr. saw her. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Dr. In, Quinn. But ah, uh, she's a Bond girl. That's right. Wait, which bond was that? I can't remember. Live and let die. Yeah. And also, she played uh, a cougar mom on, I think, uh, Wedding Crashers? Oh, yeah, she did. She was in Wedding Crashers, too. She has been acting since 1970. Uh, so she's... Jane Seymour, be still my heart. Then we have, uh, let's see. See, did you shoot? Hold on. Because I did take a lot of them. Then we have Andrea Lau, who plays Maureen. She's in DCI Banks as DS Annie Cabot, and she is amazing in that show. She's also in Midsummer Murders, but she's also in Torchwood. And we're not even done with the Who connections. Nope. (laughs) Then we have Michael Feast, who is John Corker, the private detective. Yeah, once again, it's he's. Aaron Greyjoy, and he was Ian Craigie in the Midsummer Murders. This fucking low-rent Merlin. Holy shit, he was Ian Craigie. Holy yes, shit, was. we did that episode. Yes, we did. And last, but certainly not least, we have Camille Cordery playing Mrs. Lindsay, who is Rose Tyler's mom, Jackie, in Doctor Who. Fucking hell. And they probably use the same makeup artist, frankly. <laughs> Definitely. Um, there was another Who actress in it, but she wasn't as well known. But um, she's there like you go. one of the like ten British actors. <laughs> yeah, she she the girl who played Tina was in Doctor Who, but she's not she's not on the list of really well known. Um, what sure. you what? Hold hold what you didn't know? She's in everything these days. She was no, in she's not. She was in fucking uh, the new. Um, 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 I just watched it. Wrinkle in Time. 
Oh, I've not seen it. Yeah, no, she's a huge oh. star now. Who's this? Uh, Guga Mbathe Ra. Okay. Yeah. So that was 12. That 12. was 12 fucking people. 12 British actors. Cheerio, back soon. I don't know, somehow I miss you. I love you, that's why I... Cheerio, not goodbye. The budget on this episode must have been crazy. <laughs> Jay let's just, Seymour! Let's just get everyone. Everyone. I think they, they were trying to capitalize on the success of the 1980s film, um, uh, which was not a marvel either, but um, had Donald Sutherland, had all sorts of crazy good actors in it. Um, but yeah, so there we go. There's your five British actors for a deal by innocence. I'm going to drink some more of this shit wine. <laughs> well, we get right into it. So after we get introduced to... Um, the secretary and Mr. Argyle, he, they turn off the radio that was playing a love song and they hear Jacko arguing and you go all around this giant manor house and you see all the different groups of people and they can all overhear Jack arguing with his mom. What was, what was interesting is this is good drama, but since in the book they start with Calgary coming to like tell them that Jacko is innocent. It's it's weird, uh. but they do it. I like how they do it. And see, a lot of the times what I like about I know everyone's like, oh, they they stray so far from the books and things like that. But for dramatic use of time, it yeah. establishes that almost everyone either has or has not an alibi or has a reason to want this woman dead and they're all listening and either agreeing or disagreeing with Jacko. So it immediately establishes character that you can't do on television that you, you have to do a little bit differently in a book. Yeah. And my favorite part of this specifically was that Bobby comes down the stairs and Kirsten's like holding up on like, I think laundry or something like that. And he goes, what are you doing? And she goes, listening to the argument. <laughs> yeah. What the fuck do you think I'm doing? Um, Kirsten is uh, Kirsten is Danish, weirdly in the in the television show. She's Swedish in the book, but uh, her last name is still Swedish. It's Lindstrom, so it's like, yeah, she's still Swedish. You just can't do a Swedish accent. So there we go. Is the actress British? Yep, the actress is British. So okay, well then there goes it. my theory. Yeah, she shouldn't. She just didn't do a Swedish accent. But Jack, the argument with his. Uh, between uh, Byrne Gorman and, and Jane Seymour grows heated very, very quickly because he's trying mm -hmm. to get her to give him a bunch of money um, because he owes a bunch of money to some bad guys, gangster mm -hmm. types. And he yells, I'll kill you if you won't give me the money. And then they hear, the, the rest of the manor hears a... Uh, scuffle and they rush in and he's literally choking her yeah that's definitely not going to get you the money <laughs> right i did think it was a little like no this part until the, the the rest of the plot started unfolding i was like holy fuck how come no one is taking this more seriously that he was literally trying to choke your mother like because he like he's probably done it before this didn't happen in the book but also what's weird is rose no i'm sorry rachel is a lot more likable in the book like a shit ton more likable so it's like 
nobody everyone is like yeah we all want to do that actually we're just gonna stop you because we actually we don't want you to actually murder her but if we went here we yeah. wouldn't have stopped you yeah but after you know hester takes jack and walks him out and um tells him to calm down and Rachel goes up to uh, Leo's room and asks Gwenda to leave. And he's basically like criticizing her parenting. And then she goes and it's like, well, you're the biggest parasite here. because She's the one who's been bankrolling his writing career. Mm -hmm. While she was asked to leave, Gwenda, Gwenda, I keep wanting to call her Gwendolyn. Gwenda does overhear this conversation. Mm -hmm. Rachel and Gwenda do not have this animosity towards each other in the book either see everyone is a lot less evil <laughs> in the book there was a review of this book that said you didn't give anyone a chance to be a suspect because they were all just kind of generally likable people i thought not not to get too far into it but i thought this this particular episode did a really great job of seeding red herrings and motive and yeah. things like that and in fact there's even a scene not too too far down the road of the children themselves talking about what motive could be yeah and so i thought this was overall a very well well written episode but uh on her way back to her study rachel gets waylaid by bobby who tries to talk to her and she's snaps at him and tells him to sort it out himself and like she doesn't even know why she bothered with her him and his brother um bobby doesn't exist in the book okay he's kind of for me he's random his his avarice and his inability to handle money is something that philip durant has mm. so well i wouldn't say that he doesn't have that in this tv show yeah they <laughs> they kind of split him off and create this extra it's kind of weird well i mean this i think it was again probably to give us another red hair oh yeah no 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 definitely i understand why they did it for the book i mean for the tv show i'm just i mean just giving the audience a little bit of yes i realize yeah you don't have to tell me i know it's different from the book <laughs> Meanwhile, Kirsten runs across Richard Armitage, who plays Phil. Well, I kept writing him down as Phil because my notes are all in shorthand. So I put, Philip, I always I called him his last name because I am upper class like that. <laughs> Durant. Um, yeah, Durant always had polio, so his alibi was that he couldn't have killed her because he couldn't walk. Well, the reason she runs across him is that it's kind of time to go home from dinner, and cough, we see. Cough. Hester sneaking around in the background while Ooh. he's hanging out in the foreground and not with his wife. No affair in the book. Hester is seeing another doctor who is not in the television show. But the minute she passes him by, we hear Kirsten screech because Mrs. Argyle is dead. <coughs> and that's our murder. The inspectors are called... I really missed Inspector Bird, I'm not gonna lie. Like, this yeah. guy was kind of a nothing to me. Inspector Hewish? No. Um, I didn't even catch his name, I'm not even gonna lie. Until, like, the last 20 minutes, I did not know what his name no, was. No, it's okay. It, it's the same name as in the book, so. Um, yeah, Inspector Hewish, um, who's not as young as he is in the book. I think Marple doesn't allow people with power, men with power, to be young. 
they they're either all dead because they were soldiers mm-hmm. or they're all grizzled old men. This is set in nineteen fifty five, so from World yeah. War One, they're all old men. I just thought it was he didn't didn't make any particularly interesting character choices. The script didn't do a lot with him. No, he's just the inspector. Yeah, and this this is pretty much like his defining scene is he's talking, he's interviewing Jack because they've brought him in. And Jack is like, I didn't do it. I have an alibi. I was picked up by a perf- I was picked up by a dude who talked to me about eels. I didn't do it. I also noticed that in this scene, Jack had like this amazing tie, which tended to be a theme in this episode. Mm-hmm. I was very, very impressed. But it doesn't matter what Jack says. He is convicted, and we know this through a bunch of cuts with spinning newspapers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How 1955 of of them. Yeah, right? (laughs) The story resumes two years later. I was like, holy shit. That's a time jump. Yeah, in the book, so it's, it's two years after the murder and Dr. Calgary is the book opens with Dr. Cal... It sounds like he's going to murder someone. So you think you're, like, in the head of the murderer, and he's talking about, oh, I only need a one-way ticket, or, uh, you know, and I I hope never to return. And you're like, what the fuck is happening? Is he going to go commit suicide? You don't know. But no, it's just Dr. Calgary. Well, this one opens with Miss Vaughn writing a letter to Miss Marple. Yes. She invites Miss Marple to her upcoming nuptials. Yes. And we learn that Miss Vaughn is an orphan child. Mm hmm. She's another, like Jane Cooper from Bertram's. Jane Cooper is another, a wayward girl, basically, that gets sent to Miss Marple to learn a trade. So Gwenda Vaughn is another one of her wayward girls. Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. Because I haven't read a lot of Marple recently, I should say. And so, like, the I don't really remember like what her whole deal was as a spinster dowager type um and so it was kind of fun to have some a little bit of background especially since we jumped into this series specifically in season three mm-hmm. well see they gave her a love interest who is also a five British actor now that I'm thinking of it they gave her one in an earlier series and she was uh, he was still married, and they were having an affair, and then he dies in the war, and she never she never marries because he was her one true love. I don't think that's in the books. I 100% <laughs> am certain that it's not in the books. She was just, she never married. She was just always a spinster. But we do get introduced to Dr. Calgary, and I really actually loved the setup of this scene with, it's a dark room, and there's a slideshow going, and everyone is smoking. Yes. It was perfect. It's 1955, so everyone is smoking. Well, yeah, and I, but I mean, I think we, we talked about this a lot with Father Brown, using smoking as a sign of class, and this yeah. was, like, so much more true to life that I oh, really yeah. appreciated oh, yeah. it. And just the, the actual, like, light with the smoke filtering through it from the slideshow, and this is an excellent introduction to the doctor's bumbling personality. And he's nothing like this in the book, which is, I get that he is, he's more of a comedic actor. So they were using his skills, but like in the book, he's very analytical and very justice minded and very straightforward. 
not like some weird guy who's like who puts a puts a picture of a beautiful scientist woman that he went on on his adventures with and then starts talking about her as if she's an arctic fox <laughs> it's very subtle the way they take away or add to the book like at bertram's they kept all the characters the same and just completely changed the plot mm-hmm. but here they've kept the plot the same but completely changed the characters it's weird the choice that they make and i think that's why people get upset about it because you can feel the book but not really. The tone is very different. But the way Dr. Calgary finds out that Jack's been executed is also the way that we find out that Jack's been executed, which is through another newspaper headline. Yes. And that's how he, <laughs> he finds out in the book um, as well that he's been... But Jacko doesn't get executed. He just dies of pneumonia in prison, awaiting his execution. I would rather have the hanging. I think yeah, that's a little more too. dramatic. It's so much sadder. It is. It is. It is sadder, and I think almost it's a, one of those like subtle political digs. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, what by the time you know this TV show has been made, Britain doesn't do that anymore. No. But well, when you join the European Union, you have to, and that was one of the oh that what that was one of the things that Nigel Farage pissed me off about. He's like, we could bring back the death penalty for these pedophiles and terrorists. Oh. yeah yeah blue passport send the death penalty and i wanted to stab him in the fucking neck like <laughs> there's your death penalty i know i don't i don't wish violence on anyone i'm actually pretty uh i'm i'm pretty much a pacifist but boy sometimes sometimes you test it you test it nigel farage I was actually thinking about this in this episode too, about how it's really difficult sometimes. Like I, I, and on a much like less important scale, I watch a lot of sports. Most people who follow me on Twitter know that I'm a big, big hockey fan. And it definitely is the same kind of thing. It's like when a player that you don't really like, that you think is like a dirty player or whenever mm. gets injured and you want to be like, you don't want to like celebrate the fact that they've been injured. <laughs> but at the same time, you're like, yeah. ah! No, it's it's just a little bit of schadenfreude. That's all it is. It's not even schadenfreude. It's like, it's, I don't take, I don't take, well, and I think that's the other thing is like how, how the family itself in this was trying to not take pleasure in their mom's death, but were obviously happier for it. Yeah. (laughs) And obviously a lot of them kind of wished they could have done it themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which wasn't really like that in the book. They were like, we were sad it happened, but now we have to deal with the fact that it wasn't Jacko. What the fuck? So they were more like chagrined. (laughs) Chagrined at her death. The most British thing they can ever possibly imagine. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, it it wasn't sadness or shock. Like, they were all like, Jacko had a temper and he had threatened her before and, you know, and they were just like, well... It was better that it was Jacko because now I have to look at all my siblings and be like, what the fuck? Yeah, and that's actually a scene that we get fairly quickly here. So Mrs. Marple arrives, uh, so does a storm. They're all like playing charades after dinner and a face appears in the window and it's Dr. Calgary and he's here to tell them that he is Jack's alibi, that he's the eel man. 
Yeah. That he, and he didn't kill their mom. He couldn't have killed Rachel. Mm-hmm. And that makes the family basically have to reprocess their grief. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kirsten basically like throws them out of the house after they call the police and, you know, let them back in on the, to reopen the case. And Dr. Calgary has this weird scene in the boathouse because he can't cross the, the uh, lake again because Sunny Point is on an island. Um, he can't cross the, the lake again because of the storm. And he's like hanging out in the boathouse and Hester comes and finds him. And she's talking about how the innocents are the one who will pay now, not the guilty party. Yeah, she says that in the book as well. But Marple had talked about Charlie Bravo and I and him dying and three people being suspects and only one of them was guilty but they could never find well so Marple's yeah so Marple's uh analogy oh is it's this... an actual death oh is it yeah in 1876 he was poisoned and he took three days to die no one was ever charged with the crime huh and Marple's point is, though, that the wife, the best friend, and I think the daughter were all basically accused in public opinion of having done this because mm-hmm. they could never charge anybody. Mm-hmm. And they all died early death, whether from uh, suicide or drink, I think she said. Yeah, and in the, in the, in the real story, it was only that the, the wife was, char- was charged. Um. Oh, and the, the the housekeeper. And the only one that died was... Oh, so... Uh, d- 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 murder by the housekeeper, and murder by Florence, and a groomsman. And Florence was the only one. She died of alcohol poisoning. Oh, my. Yeah, so this is an actual thing. Charlie Bravo? Yes. Wow. So because everybody's upset, Miss Marple ends up taking dinner with Kirsten instead of taking dinner with the family, which I thought was kind of weird, but sure. Um, And Kirsten kind of gives her the Lolo on everybody. Um, Talks Mary. So all of the children were adopted. Yes. Um, Mary is married to Philip, Mm -hmm. um, who Rachel really disliked. Um, Jack and Bobby are twins. Mm-hmm. Esther, or Hester rather, um, is kind of a little sensitive. Um, and then Tina and Mickey were adopted after, uh, like during the war, or, like after the war, because um, they were evacuated kids. So in the book, they use a really derogatory word to describe Tina. It's not the N word anyway. They call it a half caste which is a derogatory Mm. word for a biracial child. And it's a biracial child of Asian descent, usually uh, Indian or Pakistani, hence the word caste. So casting a biracial black woman is always an interesting, and they do it in all the shows. Like, they don't think to cast an Asian actress, which there are flipping thousands in England. I mean, come the fuck on. Yeah. <laughs> and so they never think, which I find an interesting thing, but when people, at least in American audience, think of biracial children, they think of a black and white mix. Like yeah. people don't think of biracial being anything else. And so it's really interesting that they cast a black woman 
almost always a light skin, I, either I, a light skinned black woman or an actual biracial woman. Yeah, I think I think in America the the I think there are people are starting to realize, and I say this is a very very recent thing. How how about how much bi- biracial covers here here in the South? We use biracial relationships are black and white, mm-hmm. and we're used to them. Actually, it's it's not unusual anymore. It's you don't blink an eye at it. I think once you get out of the South, you expect either more Latino and white or Latino and Asian, and in the West Coast, it's more Asian Asian and black or Asian and white. So. It's really regional how we define biracial. But in England, biracial almost always means Asian. I mean, Indian and Pakistani Asian and white Mm -hmm. rather than black and white. So I just find it interesting that every time they cast for the show or for movies, it's a black woman. Which, for black women, it's just a weird, like role erasure it's definitely one of those like well we can only have one minority in the show (laughs) i know and it's gotta be a black person (laughs) always therefore it's just going to be a black person yeah but uh, miss marple also learns that the kids get everything from rachel's trust and that jack was married yes meanwhile at dinner Tina finally just snaps and she goes, if Jack didn't kill that bitch, who did? And Leo gets very English about it. He just like, apologize for using that word about your mother, who is apparently super racist about you. (laughs) Well, no, only, only Agatha was super racist. Everyone was pretty fine about it, but Agatha, (laughs) she is not a progressive writer. She never has been. I mean, she's kind of a white feminist writer, which okay, Mm -hmm. fine. Sign of first wave, but she was rich and she was Tory, and there you go. And that's why her favorite restaurant is in the only Tory part of London. <laughs> yeah, it's a delicious <laughs> restaurant. I had really good food and delicious cocktails, but uh, yeah. So Bobby confides after dinner, after everything's broken up and everybody's super upset. Bobby confides to Miss Marple that he went and visited Jack in prison. Mm-hmm. Jack told him, maybe this is the best thing I've ever done. And so Bobby f- figured out that Jack was protecting someone. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Philip accuses Mary, his wife, of murdering her mother, mm-hmm. who denies it. Yeah. And all of the kids at, who are except for Mary, basically just get over her discussing motive. Mm-hmm. And Tina goes, well, who had the most to gain? Who's now going to be sharing his bed? Miss Marple has basically roped Dr. Calgary, or as Hester calls him, Dr. Scientist, mm-hmm. uh, into being her uh, episodic compatriot. Yes, of course. <laughs> she needs one. So it was Jane Cooper, Bertrams, and Dr. Calgary in this one. But Dr. Calgary is also the compatriot of Gwenda Vaughn. Dr. Calgary is kind of, since he's the only not, the the only person not directly related. I guess Miss Marple's one of the other ones. So mm-hmm. um, he says, I should have stayed, I should have stayed in the Arctic because lemmings don't go around murdering each other. <laughs> but despite his reticence, he, he takes on the role with, with uh, Plum. 
And uh, Miss Marple and Dr. Scientist end up walking around the, the manor with um, Hester and Tina. You know, Miss Marple's talking about murder and how it takes a certain coldness to murder somebody. Mm-hmm. And Hester uh, intim- doesn't intimate. She says that Mickey could have been the one who did it. Yeah, so Mickey is the closest to personality in the book. Mickey hates Rachel for taking him away. Even though his mother is a drunk and a louche and just a terrible woman, he he was a London boy. He was a city boy. He wanted to stay. He loved the air raids. He loved that excitement. And then she like took him away to the country and forced him to stay. And he legitimately is like, I wish I had killed her, even in the book. Mm-hmm. But I he, wish they had done a little bit more with his background. He does get like a scene where he confides in Dr. Scientist, but it does, that's it. Yeah. And he does get salt in the book and in the television show. He says that like she bought me for 100 pounds. Mm-hmm. I think I almost wish and maybe I'll, I'll I'm probably going to go back and watch some of the earlier episodes of this show because it's really well produced and I really I'm, I'm enjoying it so far but I really wish there were more mysteries or more uh yeah more of the genre shows that I like to watch um that about about the kids evacuated in the war because I think that's such an interesting perspective like psychological perspective yeah I teach World War II I, I'm not this year for various reasons but I teach World War II in French class usually usually to my French threes and I give them ration books and um, I teach them how to like code and stuff. But I also show them videos about what life was like for children during the war. And sometimes I show them French ones and sometimes I show them BBC ones. And I'm like, uh, I know this is in Britain, but it's pretty much the same. The inspector's continuing his interviews. He interviewed um, Philip and Mary earlier, and now he's interviewing Miss Vaughn. And Kirsten's out in the hall, kind of doing her usual eavesdropping thing, but also gossiping to Leo about he she about how Gwenda has loved him for a very long time, mm-hmm. well before they actually got into a relationship, and how Rachel knew and that those two had a terrible relationship because Rachel, you know, called her a slut and was like, stay away from my husband. And the door opens and the inspector overhears Mm -hmm. and Kirsten just like outright goes, you did it because you loved him. She's yelling, as Gwenda's like running up the stairs, she's like, very, very obvious. She knows somebody's listening or she can, she's just trying to be dramatic in front of everyone. Kirsten is the ultimate shit stirrer in this entire thing. But this is completely contrary to something that she told Miss Marple when mm-hmm. they were having dinner mm-hmm. about how she knew Jack had to have been the one who did it. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Miss Marple catches up with the inspector, talks through points in the story, kind of divulges a little bit about what she's learned about Rachel's personality mm-hmm. and how she's kept her family in kind of a state of arrested development. Yes. So in the book, Rachel is unable to have children. I mean, they're unable to have children for whatever reason. So she looks into adoption. She buys Sunny Point to be a war orphanage. And Kristen comes to be kind of a nanny. 
and she's also a masseuse and a nurse. So she comes to be a nurse because many of these children get sick, you know, and things like mm-hmm. that. In the book, the way they describe her love is it's so weird and so anti it's gross. Like, this book is slightly racist and then just anti-feminist. Like, they say that every woman has that maternal instinct, but once you have a child, the maternal instinct stops burning so brightly that you can you can give your child a little loving neglect. You know, let them eat dirt. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, let them... But Rachel just, every time she, quote-unquote, acquired a child, her maternal instinct got burned higher and higher because they weren't her own children as if adopted children can never satisfy them internal i do not want to birth a child out of my vagina and uh, <laughs> i just don't nobody has ever said a good thing about being pregnant ever they talk about how horrible it is like the pregnancy constipation how they uh like they cut you open in so many ways no i have no interest in birthing a child at all but i want to adopt a six-month-old why a six-month-old because they start to have some kind of personality at six months and aren't just shitting wiggling sleeping monsters (laughs) they react to their environment they smile they can hold on to things they're six-month-old and i will love that six-month-old because I know that the person I got it from could not give them what I could give them. Mm -hmm. And so reading this just made me so... I have no maternal instinct. I'm really good with children. I have no maternal instinct. If you want your child back, I will immediately give it back. (laughs) I'm not weird about it. We're not a kidnapping risk on this podcast. No. And so, like, the book just made me angry. Like... A, adoption shouldn't just be the last resort because you're barren. It could be just a legitimate option to someone who has finally gotten the time to have a child, decides Mm -hmm. not to ruin her body (laughs) through pregnancy. Like, it does. It completely ruins your body. It changes it, for sure. Yeah. Okay, changes. How about let's be tactful about it? It Well, because a lot of women who have been pregnant don't consider themselves ruined. Well, when I say ruined, I mean, like, it changes the shape of your uterus. It changes the shape of your body. It changes the shape of your breasts. It can change your hair color. It It can can change change the way food tastes to you. It definitely, there's a lot of changes. Yes. And some people may not like those changes. I certainly would jump off a cliff, <laughs> like, just thinking about it, unless it, unless I lost all of my hair, which would be fine. <laughs> but so the way Agatha Christie describes barren women and women who adopt is so far from like, A, the truth and B, the idea of motherhood and feminism and what it means to be a mother, that it just, reading it from a modern perspective, just drove me insane. So what's weird in the television show is that Rachel hates these children. Yeah. The, what that, that was, I think, probably the weakest part of this, this whole show is how Rachel kept acquiring, adopting children even though she didn't like the children she already had. But meanwhile, 
Gwenda is determined to prove that she didn't do this. And she's furiously going through the dressers and the drawers of her room because that used to be Rachel's room. And Miss Marple discovers her doing this and is like, what are you doing? And she's like, she must have left something. There has to be something that I can find. And Miss Marple helps her break into Rachel's office that night. Yeah. And pick the lock on the safe with her hairpin. I love that. That was my favorite. And she goes, how do you know how to do this? And she goes, my my nephew, Raymond West, is always losing, has the same one and is always losing his key. <laughs> yeah, that was really cute. Um, but the safe itself is empty. Except. except... Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> except for a business card. It's not as dramatic as it could have been. Yeah, okay. Except for a business card. Yeah, much better. (laughs) (laughs) I think I've got a future in voiceover. And it's for a private detective. So the next day, Gwenda and Dr. Scientist go interview the PI. Who is Ian Craigie? Who is Ian Craigie? God, I I did not even peg that. I didn't peg it one bit. I recognized everybody up to Maureen. And then when they get to John Corker... I'm like, holy shit, it's him. And then I even went back to look at my notes and we did point out Ian Craigie as Eon Greyjoy, Aaron Greyjoy, and um, and he was in Marple. We even mentioned it. Oh, that's right, we did even mention it. I love the callback. God loves a callback. It's almost like we're comedians or just watch a <laughs> shit ton of comedy. I'm not funny. As a, I've, I'm lacking that as a German. I'm not a funny person. And... I've had to train myself by watching, I cannot tell you how many comedy shows, not stand-up comedy and um, the panel shows. I've, I've learnt comedic timing and I've learnt to be funny in an ironic fashion, but that is a learned skill because I am not a funny person. Irony is, the, uh, is a learned trait. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> they find out from Craigie whose name I actually totally missed in the show. From John Corker slash Ian Craigie, that he was actually investigating Phil, who was a Philanderer. (laughs) (laughs) I even wrote that one in my notes. (laughs) I prepped that joke. (laughs) That's what prep gets you. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Sorry, everybody. But they also go talk to Maureen. And Maureen divulges that she knew Jack was kind of a bad, bad egg. Um, and that he used to hit up old ladies for money. And if he ever went to his mom, it was because he was really desperate. Yeah. And um, she even tells a story about how this one woman at the car dealership, the, the owner's wife, Lent him money from his own her own savings so yeah. that he she he could pay back her husband for money he'd stolen. Yes. But back at the manor, Miss Marple is talking to Mary, who's talking who has been under her mother's thumb and now under Bobby's thumb because she can't get the money from the trust to move out of the house. And then she goes to talk to Leo Argyle, father Papa Argyle, and he's talking about his book and his his history 
and how sometimes good things come from bad deeds. And that's how he was able to move on from the fact that his son had killed his wife. Mm -hmm. And now he's like, well, I don't know what to think. Down at the police station, a woman and her small child talk to the inspector who learns from said small child that Tina, despite what she said before, was actually at Sunny Point. Ah, uh, scrumping, which means just stealing apples. Oh. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. That's okay. I thought it was like illegal fishing or something. Oh yeah, no, it is. Uh, <laughs> it used to just be picking up windfall apples. So they, mm-hmm. they don't belong to anyone. Windfall apples you can pick up legally. Scrum- but then it, it became like picking apples. That went yours. Oh. I like, but I love how Inspector Yush like leans over and goes, "Did you, did you clash? Basically, did you clash Rachel Argyle over the head? <laughs> Is that what you're confessing to, nine year old boy? <laughs> it was really funny. He's like, "Did you do this when you were seven? Yes. He's like, "No, stupid inspectors, silly man. No, I think he was being cute." I actually found it adorable. Like, did you notice someone small child? It was so... See, it was adorable in a British way. So I'm guessing that you don't do that here in America. You don't turn to a seven-year-old, nine-year-old and go, so did you smack someone over the head with a poker causing massive brain trauma? No. If he had been less explicit about it, I would have thought it was a joke. Yeah. But he was so, like... I thought, Not even just matter of fact, but because he like was very, very specific about the details of it, I thought he was being serious. No, I thought he was joking. <laughs> See? Well, only time will tell. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but because this uh, Tina's bike was seen, the police go arrest Tina while she is playing badminton with her siblings. And... It's pretty obvious, by the way, that Mickey is fighting back, that he's stupid in love with her. Mickey has lost his mind. And I I write, of course, the incest subtext. God, right? You can't have fucking single episode in a British TV show without incest. That's because incest is much more common on a fucking island. (laughs) (laughs) Like, um, I always tell this story... Because I still, to this day, think it's hysterical. It's an Iceland-only app. Like, you have have to have an Icelandic phone number. But it's a book of family relationships, basically. Because everyone is named uh, Isaac's daughter or Isaac's son. So you can go Mm -hmm. back generations. And when you tap your phones together, you can tell if how related you are. There's 300,000 people in Iceland, so of course you're probably going to be in some way, shape, or form related, unless you're new to the island. So it's like one of my favorite things. <laughs> so yeah, incest is an actual thing on an island. Not so much in, I mean, in very small communities in America, but like... Yeah, America's very large. Yeah, it's not as prevalent. And we know that incest is a huge thing because William was the first one not to marry someone he's related to. William. so right. William. Because his mother was certainly related to Charles. Oh, stop. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like, I didn't even want to think about that. Now I'm thinking about that. William and Harry are the first two. Uh, That's why they live so fucking long. So what happens when we breed? <laughs> the house kirsten's starting so much shit she's the biggest shitster and talking about how terrible it is that tina's been taking away and it should have been gwenda and all of that stuff and gwenda makes a big old fucking speech and puts her right in the crosshairs of whoever the actual murderer is because she's saying i know stuff i know stuff about this family i know things and then she straight up accused dorant of messing around on Mary. Which he was. Which he was. So, but <laughs> luckily he can't get upstairs. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so. But Leo does actually ask Gwenda to move out. And as the clock strikes midnight, we see Bobby thinking better of taking a shit ton of pills. Yes. Um, we see Phil going through Rachel's desk. And we see Gwenda trying on her veil because the wedding has been called off. She's not Somebody... only in the veil, she's in her wedding dress too. Oh, I thought that was just a nightgown. A... Oh, poor Gwenda. Oh, no. Because she's stabbed to death. <laughs> stabby, stabby. Um, in the book, it's Dorant. <laughs> Dorant gets really close to her murderers and then gets stabbed. So. Oh what twist also also tina is stabbed as well not she's not killed but she's stabbed to throw the scent off the actual murderer well miss marple receives the bad news from kirsten but it was actually leo who found the body and because he was as, he was bringing her a cup of tea to kick her out here's your tea I know. get out of my house <laughs> but the inspector divulges she was killed with a letter opener and then they, in short order, find that in Leo's study. With the bloodstained gloves. Yeah. You live on an island. Right. <laughs> Throw it in the river. Well. I mean, we know why. I, we absolutely know why. They take Leo away for questioning. They they arrest him. But Phil tells Hester outside, because she's been having her own little temper tantrum. Uh, I think they may be on to us, which as as viewers, we were on to you the whole time because she was the lady in the like flashback when they were getting questioned. Yes. Kirsten serves tea and to everybody. And again, like the shady ass bitch she is, is talking about how Leo had started his affair with Gwenda well before Rachel was dead and just this whole nine yard, like a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Dr. Scientist goes to talk to Mrs. Lindsay. Jackie! Yes. Yes. But he talks to her about Jack because he wanted to actually like learn more about their relationship. Mm-hmm. And she confirms that he was a real cougars man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which. All right. I mean, I've seen Burn Gorman. <laughs> I mean, if that so... see, see once again, that's about the best the British can do. <laughs> like Richard Armitage is legitimately good looking. Yeah, but though they did some hair shit to him, yeah. that shouldn't have been done. I mean, 
that was just 1950s kind of that actually that floppy long haired style was actually quite popular post World War Two. Yeah, I'm not into it. No, I'm not into it. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying it was popular. <laughs> but there are many hairstyles that, like the 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 undercut on guys. Um, mm-hmm. It that's a huge like that's huge in Europe, but here it's been co opted by neo Nazis. So it makes my eye twitch when I see like my man crushes in Europe with those undercuts, and I'm just like, oh, I, I really hope. Oh, you mean like like where you like shave off like the back part mm-hmm. of your hair, but then it flops down under? Over yeah, it? yeah. So I mean, it's been co-opted by neo Nazis and queer women. Yeah, I mean, okay, <laughs> yes. whatever. When I look at a woman, I'm not like. Hmm. What I look like, when I look like at a Latino woman, like a big Latino woman who has an undercut. I'm not like, hmm, are you a neo-Nazi? No. <laughs> My sister actually has one of those. And she, she works in, like, an advertising job. So she's like, yeah, it's like during work with my hair down, after work with my hair up. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's the new party in the front, business in the back. Yeah, it's like or a... Re- other way around. It's a reverse mullet, I suppose. <laughs> but, um... Mullet au moderne. Yes. Yes. A nouveau mullet. <laughs> anyway, we get to see Bobby hurriedly packing like some silver into a briefcase, and he gets confronted again by Phil about whether or not, you know, getting their money. They only want twenty thousand pounds and he should have half a million or quarter of a million. Mm-hmm. And Bobby like ignores him and rushes out. No, does he? <sighs> Mary corners Mrs. Marple. Miss Marple. Yes. Mrs. I'm halfway done with my wine at this point. I have uh, had a glass. Oh, so you gotta you gotta step up your wine really game. Do. You really gotta. Mary corners him, corners Miss Marple, and talks about how she knows Phil was having affairs with Hester. Um and she also uh talks about um how Hester, everybody wants to protect Hester. Jack wanted to protect Hester. Everybody wants to protect Hester. Mm-hmm. And that's why she thinks that Phil and Hester did it. Yes. Calgary, this is like, or you can tell I'm going real fast because we're getting towards the end yes. and everything's cutting, cutting together very quickly. Yes. Calgary gets a message at the inn and rushes off. Dun, dun, dun. He gets back to the island just to see, in time to see Bobby getting into the boat. And he's, Hester's like on the dock like being real sad and he like gets her to stop being on the dock and sad but then they hear a splash and bobby has fallen in the water oh but she says a really nice line about money because they're talking about how money doesn't buy half and he's like trying to pull her off and she goes why have human beings turned unhappiness into coins you can actually touch and i'm like capitalism baby capitalism is why yeah bitches (laughs) no i am a goddamn socialist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just making fun. And you'll know it every fucking episode. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's like a dominant personality trait right now I, of this podcast anymore. It, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's murder <laughs> and socialism. <laughs> they find Bobby's body just before sunset, and the inspector... He's talking to Miss Marple and he's like, well, this person obviously did I even forget at this point who the inspector thinks fucking did it. 
But Miss Marple is like, no, no, no. We need to talk. No, he has, well, I have a list of fucking suspects. They're all pretty plausible. And Marple's like, hold up, bitch. You just Hold up, bitch. You just gotta ask. I'm the OG. I got this. Yeah, you just gotta ask some questions. <laughs> She's the OM, the original Marple. Um... <laughs> So she gathers everyone in the sitting room for tea and goes through all of the family's dirty laundry. So she reveals that Bobby has been scamming and doing all sorts of big ass frauds, um, which she learned from the message that Dr. Calgary sent mm-hmm. because everybody loves a good day. It's like Moxina. Yes. But this meant that he was about to be arrested by the feds, and that's why he was so willing to kill himself. <laughs> the feds. <laughs> I guess. I mean, the British feds. <laughs> the feds. <laughs> the feds. Yes, the FBI was coming from America to arrest him. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> the law enforcement of Britain. J- the British IRS. The most scary Britons. HMLC. <laughs> there you go. What the fuck? Are <laughs> no, I'm J. Edgar Hoover sends his G-men <laughs> to, <laughs> to Sunny Point. She also reveals, uh, or forces Tina to reveal her relationship with Mickey and how it's totes cool because they aren't actually related. Um, Which is complete bullshit, because adopted siblings- They were raised together! Yeah, adopted siblings very rarely have that sort of incesty. I mean, it happens, but it's super rare. Well, the gross part is they were raised together. Yeah. It wasn't like that she was adopted when she was 17, mm-hmm. you know? Like, they were adopted as children, yeah. together, yeah. and grew up as brother and sister. Yes. And then, in a stunning, dramatic moment- it was revealed that it was Kirsten, the shady bitch, all along. Yes, it was Kirsten, the shady bitch, in the book as well, for the same exact fucking reasons. Well, the twist here, though, is that Kirsten did it because she was a conquest of Jack. Yep. And she was in love with the boy that she had raised. Yep. Once again, that's a little weird. You island people. I don't know. I don't have an island personality. I want to move to Iceland. I'm going to have to like cultivate one very soon. <laughs> one that is one that is you can just, No, you can just put on your Tinder profile. Was not born here. <laughs> Guaranteed not to be your cousin. It won't be awkward <laughs> at family. <laughs> Hashtag it won't be awkward. <laughs> it, won't, it won't be awkward. <laughs> uh, I actually really liked the button on this episode. I thought it was very good tonality uh, tonal. from a tonal, yeah, tone tonal tonally. Fuck, um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was very good tonally because after Kirsten is shamed into revealing that she to, to, shamed into confessing, mm-hmm. um, in that Miss Marple is like, "You love these children. You want them to have a nice life." Like. If you don't confess, they will always be under suspicion. Yeah. Remember Charlie Bravo. Bravo. That does not sound like a real name. It wasn't his real name. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so Kirsten does because she doesn't want these kids, which she 
does mm-hmm. actually love. Like you see her reaching for Hester as she's being taken away from by the police. And I thought compared to last, well, last episode was kind of cartoonish in the first place, but like compared to like Father Brown, mm-hmm. compared to the Midsummer Murders, I thought the button on this episode was really lovely and like low key. Yes. And it's just Dr. Calgary and Miss Marple talking about what actually, where they want to go and with it, like, he's off to the Galapagos and she is like thinking fondly of home. Mm-hmm. And I just, I really enjoyed and, that. And she goes, you don't go home very much, do you? And he goes, uh, no. <laughs> Did you figure it out? Uh, before you read the book? Because I know you've seen this series before. It was hard in the book to figure out who it was. Um, but watching the television show, it was a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it basically the moment Kirsten said it was definitely Gwenda. Yeah. Because she had literally said just before it yeah. was Jack. Yeah. And I was like, there's no reason for you to be this shady of a bitch. Yeah. No, it was it was as soon as she was like like dramatically accusing Gwenda I was like she's hiding something yeah also she's a she's a foreigner so (laughs) if you can't be racist be xenophobic (laughs) I suppose uh no I thought it was I did think it was interesting with respect to Kirsten the character choices about Kirsten how very disrespectful she was the whole time even in like even if we had she had just been put there as a red herring, which a few times I was like, mm, is it maybe Hester? But I was like, no, no, it's got to be this bitch. Yes. It, even if she had just been put there as a red herring and they went with Hester, she was, as a housekeeper, treated herself like one of their peers. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was very strange in a British TV show. Yeah. It was a really strange choice. Like, even from the very, very beginning when she's like, no, dude, I'm over, I'm eavesdropping. Like, what the fuck? Mm. (laughs) Do you hear this shit? (laughs) (laughs) And I think that also helped build the case against her. Is that she definitely thought of herself as one of them, as one of the family and not as a housekeeper. And I thought maybe at the end it would be a monetary reason. Mm -mm. Like she was had expected to be promised something by Rachel, mm-hmm. and then it was taken away. Um, I didn't. I didn't see the Jack thing coming. I will say that it's more. It's more obvious in the book, I suppose. The way Jack manipulates women because everyone starts talking about it, and then you're like slowly but surely like, ah, oh, okay. Did you like this episode? Mm, yes, yes, I did. I thought it was great. I was arrested. Even like the first five minutes of that, like pre two years later yeah. thing, I thought were fantastic. And I, I really think it's the, just the caliber of actors they got. <laughs> like well, when yeah. you have spectacular actors, like every cast member is just really, really good. Like you're like, okay. well, not only do I think the acting was great, which we absolutely was. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, Burn Gorman was great, even, and he didn't even get that much screen time. Jane Seymour was flawless, yes. as obvious. Um, but I thought it was well directed and also really well written. And one thing I noticed when I was on the IMDb page, like looking at my like list of five British actors, was this was directed by a woman. Yes. 
And women don't direct a whole lot of TV. And I was thinking, it reminded me a little bit of that podcast that we talked about at the beginning and how cozy mysteries, I feel like, are a lot of times written by women. It's not to say that men don't, Mm -hmm. but like, I think it's probably something close to like 65, 70% female authors Mm -hmm. who write cozy mysteries, as opposed to most literature. And thinking back through, like, Father Brown, we had not female directors, but female screenwriters, Mm. which, again, is pretty rare in TV. Mm. And I just wonder if there's more of a, a, you know, prominence of women in this particular genre than any other genre, because I think it is a more female-dominated space. Cozy Mysteries are universally read as well. It's If it's... Agatha Christie is the second most read after the Bible. So I think that women have an easier time pitching a cozy mystery at the that would make at sense. the BBC and ITV because people have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Or it's easier to get the job because it's not one of those like, well, we don't know if a woman can write an action thriller. Yeah, but we a woman has obviously written a cozy mystery. Cozy mysteries from that era, that golden age era, are good reading they're fast they tell a good story they have a really good plot so building on them is not terribly difficult it's, it's almost like it's a little bit feminist and a little bit sexist at the i same know it's time. a little bit sexist but let's <laughs> give them the easy cozy mystery basically <laughs> yeah <laughs> but no i love this episode i i strongly recommend anybody go watch this episode it was fantastic mm-hmm. I even didn't like do, I feel like I didn't talk about the plot too much because I didn't want to like give too much away. It's just, it's just really, really well done. Strong recommend on this one. Oh yeah. Did you like your wine? No. (laughs) Have you yet been convinced to stop buying $5 Lidl? My last wine was very good. So no, (laughs) it's just always going to be hit or miss. Are you going to come, you're going to come listen to this podcast and Carol's going to drink consistently excellent wines and I'm going to drink, <laughs> you never know, you never know. <laughs> you're going to be able to afford my wine. Drink it if you- You can afford my wine. I don't drink expensive wine. Drink my wine if you just want to get plastered. Because apparently, <laughs> I mean, I've been to South Africa quite a few times. In my life. And their wine is uh, drinkable. It's what it says on the bottle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's good. I think South Africa needs to mature a little bit. Their wines are not, their wines are hit and miss. That's the problem with South African wines is that they are hit and miss. And so. Um, I literally, I thought you were going to end it with, that's the problem with South Africa <laughs> is that their wines are hit or miss. <laughs> There are many problems with South Africa, but the biggest one. <laughs> the biggest one is definitely. Don't one. trust the vineyards. Yeah. Don't trust the vineyards. I mean, of all the problems that you can have with South Africa, is that the only thing? I think that's the only thing about South Africa is the vineyards. No. <laughs> the last time I had a South African wine, I was on a train because it was I was on the first class in the first class cabin, and uh, of course I only I only go on first class on trains. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Man, I will take a bus. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no. 
this is the difference between you and I. You know, I was thinking about this the other day too, is that like, you're like, oh, I really want to live like Lady Felicia. And I'm like, I really want to be Miss Marple. I want to be 80. <laughs> See, I want other people to carry my luggage, but I don't want to have to pay them for it. <laughs> I want to have an excuse to walk slowly. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, this actually is okay. I can oh, kind of feel it, a headache for me. It's though. a. I give it a three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, sorry. Yeah, this one is. This one is okay. It's contains sulfites. Damn, fucking bitch! I need to look at these labels. So that would I think be my major complaint about it is that I can already feel a headache. Yeah. It's- uh, red wines contain way more sulf- sulfates than white wines because of sulfites. I'm sorry, not the same thing. Yeah. Sulfates are the things that are bad for your hair. Yes, sulfites are bad for your wine. Yes. But not all not all wines do. Not all red wines do contain them. Um, and this one has a decent amount yes. apparently because I'm. Uh, but um, you know, it's totally fine. I'm gonna give it a from a taste perspective. I give it a seven, but I can feel the headache. So six and a half. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Classlicity. And I'm at SDM Rights. And you can follow our official Twitter at Wine Murder Night, which you should do so that you can vote on what we watch next. Oh, goodness. We still have like two episodes. Three episodes. Three. Three. (laughs) We still have three episodes. I don't want to think about it. But you should follow us now so that you don't miss it when it happens. Yes, and you should... Every once in a while, I will write something pithy. Not amusing, <laughs> just pithy. And Remember, she irony doesn't work well on the <laughs> internet, so she's not funny online. <laughs> you can subscribe to us on iTunes, you can listen to us on Spotify, you can find our RSS feed, and you should tell everybody else to listen to us, too. And if you leave us a five-star review on iTunes, we will toast to you. Yes. So, here is two readers something who's five-star, four-star review, whatever, I don't give a shit. Uh, a delightful way to feed my newfound Midsummer Murder addiction. Also appreciate the affordable wines and associated commentary. Recommend. Cheers. Cheers to you, reader something. And also the best part of this review is Badger's Drift and I'm here for it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back and listen to that one. (laughs) As always, we would like to, to what? Spasiba! No. (laughs) We would like to Spasiba. Yes. We would like to Spasiba. Anton Koryakov. Who wrote and performed Simple Life, our theme song, off the album Rest Start. Till next time! Bye.